the hardest part was the reaction from people. So you're in Sydney, you're surrounded by Sydney people and they say, oh, but what are you going to do out there? There's no opportunities out there. Um, One person said, you know, your parents gave you the best education only to move um, out there. You know, and I I think that um, when you're challenged with that response, um, it makes it really hard to commit This episode of the Humans of Agriculture podcast was recorded at the Exchange in Dubbo on Wiradjuri country and I'd like to extend my respects to their elders past, present and emerging and I'd like to extend those respects to the traditional custodians of the country wherever you may be listening to this podcast. LAWD came on early last year to support the Humans of Agriculture podcast and we are so thankful for their support. LAWD are the specialists in agribusiness valuations and transactions, and they've certainly been keeping busy over the last 12 months with everything that's happening in the Australian rural property market. Jump over to their website, lawd.com.au, to check out their listings. G'day and welcome back to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and as always, thank you so much for tuning in this week to the podcast. We've had two awesome episodes so far, and this one is absolutely the same. We often hear those stories of that elusive dream of packing up, starting a startup business, falling in love, moving to regional Australia, and they end pretty happily, and the rest is history. But our next guest shares what that transition is really like, what happened along the way, what there is to be gained and what there is to be learned through the process. Gillian Kilby, in my eyes, is probably one of the most influential people in rural Australia. She's set out to have a real profound impact that improves the lives and livelihoods of people right across Australia. You might know Jill through the exchange in Dubbo or one of her many other business ventures. As always, if you've got some key takeaways, we'd love to hear them from you. Hit us up on our socials at Humans of Agriculture with an underscore or share this episode with a friend. There's plenty of awesome takeaways. Enjoy. I probably should firstly start off by welcoming you to the Humans of Agriculture podcast, but I find it funny because we're actually in your space as well. So, <laughs> Well, it, it's not my space anymore. I mean, there's so many business owners here. It's everyone's space. And the, um, the great thing about real estate is real estate survives beyond um, any one person. So you can start a business with a local champion, but when that local champion leaves town, sometimes those initiatives fall over. And I wanted the exchange to be a building and a community space first so that if I ever leave town, um, it's still here when I go. And the community supports the community, not Gillian Kilby. And um, and in COVID, I did leave town and I got married and I had a baby and the exchange kept keeping on. And, and I don't know that many people actually know that I even have a baby. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you, you mentioned it to me as Surprise. you got a new side hustle. <laughs> Is a big side hustle. It's um, I'm 37. Big decision to have a baby, um, and I'm so glad I did. Yeah. Had you put it off for a long time with mm. chasing dreams? No, I hadn't put it off. I think there's a, a combination of things that lead to having a kid, and and the opportunity has to be right, the partnership has to be right, the timing. Um, 
these days for women are thinking about well, what's my financial security for myself to stop and have a baby and um, as it turns out you don't have to stop uh, which we haven't but um, one of the greatest uh, when I first got pregnant I said this baby is going to be the best thing that ever happened to me because it forced me to create contingency within my business it forced me to look at the things that I was controlling that I didn't need to control the things that I could outsource, delegate, or better yet, grow and empower a team, and that team have now taken over. Um, we called 2021 the year of the plan, the process, the template, and the system. I know that's clunky, but that's what we called it. And uh, we are now approaching the end of 2021, and we, we did it. As a team, we all look back over the year and we can say that business as usual, we have systems in place. We're now trying to decide the theme for 2022. <laughs> I think it'll be something like, um, I can't work it out. It's like hopscotch. We've got the plan, so it's laid out on the ground, and our team can now jump, spring, and skip through hopscotch. It's enjoyable. Um, it's fun. It's a good place to be. In terms of have you come back into a different role than yeah. what you left? And what does it yeah. look like? What's your role today well, it's in a, exchange? a big... Um, and, and different role in that I'm looking outwards. So there are managers and there are leaders. There are people who manage internally and there are people who manage externally. And when you get the ingredients right internally, when your team are, are productive and happy and capable and empowered and growing, they can manage what's inside the business. And all of a sudden, you can start to look out into the world and say, well, I would love the exchange to be in, as I said, on the buy from the bush, big pit big break pitch I'd love to have the exchange to be in 10 locations in five years um, what if it was in a hundred locations in five years and if um, you can't turn your attention to something like that if you're still in the rats and mice if you're still inside the organization it's actually one of my mentors that said that to me she said for you to start growing and scaling and looking outside um, you need to have everything going well internally I really want to come back onto that and I think it'll really tie into the whole startup journey. But <laughs> starting off, you're a farmer's daughter. So where was home? Where did you spend your childhood? I spent my childhood on a farm near Canamble and uh, it was incredible because we were given um, great freedom within very strict boundaries and my parents had a big focus on education. Mum was a teacher, mum's now a farmer and on the board of New South Wales Farmers um, Dad has been a farmer all his life, but their number one priority was our education. So we, uh, we didn't get to watch Home and Away. We had to do our homework or we could watch the news. They were our options. Um, and, you know, it was pretty tough uh, when you're a kid and you're told you can't watch Home and Away. But um, your education is one thing that when you get out of bed, it can't be taken away from you. Um, so many things are out of our control in COVID. Um, our ability to work, travel, um, even the ability to date someone is made more difficult by COVID. And yet your education is one thing that will never get out of bed and leave you. So I'm very grateful that I've had that behind me. And did that discipline follow through high school? Was it always continual education? Was that the plan, finishing high school? Yeah, I, um, I jumped straight from high school straight into a civil engineering degree. I didn't have a gap year and I would... I think gap years are wonderful for young people to go and work and travel. Um, but for me, I went straight into civil engineering. I came straight out of civil engineering, straight onto a construction site on Sydney Harbour, 
which I love. You know, there were about 20 blokes in my team. Um, I was the only woman on site. I was learning, but I said to those guys on site, um, I said, you've got to look at me as though I'm your daughter. I'm going to university. I've finished. I've got my first job. And over these next few years, we're going to work together. And if you take the time to train me and talk to me and educate me over our time together working in construction, a couple of years from now, you will have a wonderful project engineer to work with, um, as opposed to a lot of trades who turn around and say, oh, that project engineer is a real pain, that project engineer is difficult to work with. So you have this opportunity to train me to be the type of engineer you want to work with, so invest now and I'll be that person. And um, four years later, we had a wonderful working relationship, but um, I decided it was time to leave and it was very sad. I don't think I would have ever left that company if it wasn't for the desire to go back regional and, of course, love of a farmer. <laughs> I'm going to jump into that in a second. But that confidence to be up front and uh, as a early 20-year-old, where did that come from? Um, I don't know where it came from, but it was 7am. We were on site. It was one of my first days and they have a toolbox talk very first thing in the morning and um, all the boys are sitting there and they said you know Jill's going to talk and I I said you know so and so you have a daughter who's at uni and and you have a daughter who's at uni and the only way I could connect with them was through a very personal experience for them and and interestingly for those guys on my construction site their daughters were first in family to go to university so there was a real understanding of what I was going through coming onto a construction site with all men all men um you know, it was the first female toilet on that construction site just for me and, um, and it was wonderful. I was so well looked after. Uh, it was such a wonderful place to work and from the foreman um, down to the labourers, um, they were really good to me. So. Do, you, do you stay in touch with some I do. of those people? I do. That's um, really cool. Yeah, I was chatting to the first foreman I ever worked with. I was chatting to him the other day and he said, can I hear a baby in the background? <laughs> said you can he said Jesus I've got grandchildren now and (laughs) (laughs) what was the the catalyst you mentioned a little bit of love of a farmer but the catalyst to move regional were you worried about where Um, where your career could go I was really worried about my career it that was the toughest uh second toughest decision probably a decision to leave Sydney when you, you can see your trajectory going in an upwards direction. You can see your career path to date. You can see the next steps. And all of a sudden it's like, well, if I leave, what happens to me? There's no, it doesn't feel like there'll be the same opportunities if I go out west. Um, and that was my one of my biggest fears. But it was um, a decision to move. I'd been dating a farmer for some years and it was time to go. Uh, and, and I wanted to put that relationship first. The hardest part was the reaction from people. So you're in Sydney, you're surrounded by Sydney people and they say, oh, but what are you going to do out there? There's no opportunities out there. Um, One person said, you know, your parents gave you the best education only to move um, out there. You know, and I I think that um, when you're challenged with that response, um, it makes it really hard to commit and stick to your decision and go with full flight and full force. Um, for me, uh, it was quite um, well. It was quite interesting. In two thousand and nine, there was a big dust storm that hit Sydney Harbour. You know, they could see it from space, and you couldn't see the Harbour Bridge or the Opera House, and that was where my construction site was. 
Um, and that was the day I resigned. So it feels like the dust came into Sydney and I was like clearing out. Um, but I got uh, the thing that, um, well, I didn't have, I didn't have any job to go to. I just knew that if I put my feelers out, um, the network would respond. And sometimes the hardest transitions we make are into the unknown. Um, someone described to me at the time that we're all like monkeys. You let go of one branch only once holding the next branch. Um, but for me, I was letting go of the branch, my career in Sydney, and I didn't have the next one to grab. I didn't even, I couldn't even see it. I didn't know anyone who was an engineer in a regional area working for themselves. And for me, my only option would have been to go to one of the small councils and they just didn't have a job for me. And at 25, um, it sort of seems uh, less than feasible to start a business around engineering, but um, I had enough people around me that I could do it. So talk me through that. You're 25, living out in Walgett, you decide to set up a business. Where, where did you look yeah. to, to start? <laughs> well, um, everything is local. Everything starts local. And people really want to support local people starting businesses. And so for me, the first step was um, who am I going to talk with, meet with, to go on the journey? So the first council I met with was Brewarrina Shire Council. And I did actually go for a job there and I didn't get the job. But all three people on the interview panel rang me and said, um, you didn't get the job, but we really want to work with you in some capacity. Um, can we hit you up if we need some um, contract work done? I was like, absolutely. And I was very quick to jump on that opportunity that, okay, there's contract work possibly available. What do I need? And it was something like the 18th of December, I did my ABN, a bank account, a phone number, a business card. And I sat back and I said, right, that's it. I've started a business. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> well, everyone thinks starting a business is so hard, but yeah. it's not hard. Um, my perception of how to start a business, I thought you would, um, you know, the curtains would be drawn and you'd be in a theatre full of people and the spotlight and they would open the curtains and here would be my business. But in actual fact, starting a business is like being shoved out onto an empty stage and it's dusty and the lights aren't on, there's no one in the audience. <laughs> and the, so starting a business is easy. Um, running a business, finding staff, getting customers focusing on your one thing that will generate the revenue you need to be sustainable, that's hard. Hey, it's Nick here, Sheep Farmer and Rabobank Regional Client Council member. I'm passionate about supporting our local community so we can improve community wellbeing and build strong local economies. My job as a client council member is to help secure funding for regional grassroots initiatives. Those that support education in ag rural health, sustainability, and help bridge the country-city divide. We've helped organisations like Boys to the Bush, funded school field days like Ag Vision, and held succession planning workshops, just to name a few. If you have an idea to make a difference to regional Australia, go to our website at www.rabobank.com.au and nominate via our community fund. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs> the focus piece is a big one because I think that's in any, particularly when you're looking for revenue opportunities so you can start to make it self-sustainable is looking at where does it go and then like I've been in a couple of startups over the years and now trying to do one of myself and it's, yeah, you start to see shining lights. And oh, yeah. How, how did you go like in terms of that discipline or was 
was there an opportunity which just presented itself from the beginning? There's, um, I think of everything in swim lanes. So everything I'm doing fits in a, in a swim lane. And the further I progress one item down that swim lane and then jump into the next swim lane and push that down versus thinking of it all as just a smattering of jobs that I need to get to at some point. I like to think of it as we're moving forward just different lanes at different paces and different times, depending on priority, timing, opportunity. So I suppose I always feel like I have 100 irons in the fire and the 99 that never work out, uh, no worries. But the one that works out, I'm like, oh, my God, look at this. There you go. (laughs) As you were saying, your swim lanes... As you started putting things, like the spots around, I was actually thinking of a Connect Forward, so maybe that's yeah. an idea of how my mind works. Games. And when it comes to forgetting the ideas, do you, do you spend enough time reflecting on those, yeah, the failures or the mishaps, or is it all about just keep the momentum going forwards? Yeah, some, um, some failures upset me. And or when um, people aren't trustworthy or honest or... Um, when people cross paths with us for, for the wrong reason. Um, they upset me a lot and I can often wake up at 3am thinking about that and I've found that um, uh, talking to my husband about it and talking to my advisors about it has been one of the best ways to move past those hard things but I certainly don't focus on many um, of those hard things. But and so of those thousand ideas, where, where are we sitting? Has, <laughs> has one come to the surface? Yeah, there's a few competing ones. And uh, I wanted to make sure that now there are, um, you know, we only have so many hours a day. So how do I find um, the idea that meets all my criteria? People talk about um, the Venn diagram. And a best example is, Um, A family of four are going on a holiday and one person likes to read books, one person likes to hike, one person likes the beach and one person likes a pool. Find a location that gives you all four of those things and Hawaii is probably the best example because the beaches and the pools are right together and you can go for a hike or you can read a book. Um, If you can find all your... all those circles in that Venn diagram are what's important to you and you can find an opportunity at the centre of that. You're no longer compromising. You have found something within your sweet spot. A lot of people used to walk around at Stanford where I did my MBA and say, I really want to start a business. I really want to be a successful entrepreneur. I just can't find the idea. And it's like that's possibly the wrong reason to start your own business is that you want to be famous, you want your own business, but you can't find an idea. Um, a lot of my opportunities have come from focusing on what's the problem, what's the pain point, and how is this idea going to solve for that, as opposed to lead with the idea and then find the person with the problem who wants to buy from you. Interesting. Cause, and, and looping back, because you've mentioned to Stanford, which is kind of the next step, but you ended up working with 54 councils... Yeah. Um, and it was funny, as I was driving here, I was driving past like various roadworks and I was like, oh, I wonder if Gillian <laughs> was working on this project all those years yeah. ago. How, how did you, well, yeah, building your team, was it, were you working across all of those or, or yeah. did you end up building quite a large-ish business? Yeah, um, it was interesting how it worked. Um, regional Australia is a wonderful place to have a business and 
I was chatting to a business network in Sydney recently and I said, imagine you only get 100 customers for the year. And then imagine if those 100 customers for the year are the customers you will have for the next 50 years and you only get those 100 customers. So that's regional Australia. Whether you're running a, uh, whether you're a diesel mechanic, whether you're a cafe, whether you have a co-working space, or for me, serving local government through an engineering firm, there are only 100 councils in regional Australia. That's it. So if, and they're all connected and they all know each other. So if you do a good job for one council, I guarantee you a month from now, that council will talk to another council and there'll be a job coming back in through those referrals. Um, you know, that, I started that business in 20, 2009. So 12 years later, a council rang me last week and said, hey, my boss just told me I absolutely need to talk to you. We need something done. And it's like, oh, interesting, because I worked with your boss six years ago. There you go. Yeah. And regional Australia is such a small place. Regional business owners have to be so much better at customer service. So I started off with my first council, Brewarrinashire Council, and they said to me, we don't have an engineering job, but we are having a conference and we're bringing together uh, about 15 um, councils from the region and we're, we're bringing all the general managers and the mayors and we want you to run the conference. Now, I don't know how to run a conference, but I do know how to manage a project and that's the skill set you get in engineering. Yep. So I hired one of my first employees out at Walgut and we're still in touch today. She's still out between Walgut and Narrabri. And uh, she helped and we pulled the conference together. We had guest speakers. We had local business involved. You know, Brewarren is not a big place to fit 130 people, but we billeted mayors and general managers in people's homes. And Lillian Brady, the mayor of Cobart, shared a room with someone. Really? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was such a wonderful conference because it had a different feel. I mean, if you go to Orange or Sydney, you get put up in a hotel. It's, it's a very... Um, corporate environment but you go out to Brie Warner and here's the mayor sharing a room with someone else it's kind of like um <laughs> did you see what James Walker did he did something similar a few years ago in Longreach and oh, blew, I want to call, say it was the CEO summit or something yeah and he, so he invited all these people and then end up having them sleeping on swags yeah outside yeah that's just it. an incredible completely different environment to get yes. people in which you just open up a, a different way of thinking wouldn't it that's it and if they They've got to know that's what they're in for. They've got to know, you know, welcome to the Brewarrina General Managers Conference. Um, this is a community-led event. We're supporting local business and we're billeting you out to local families as part of the experience, as opposed to um, <laughs> no hotel, um, surprise. Yeah, yeah. People just want to know that this is part of the experience. And from that conference, we... Um, uh, one of the initiatives we took was to invite all the engineers, the directors of infrastructure as well, bring them together with the mayors and the general managers for the conference. So we was actually... Was that your idea? I think so, but, you know, success has a thousand fathers, so let's <laughs> say that um, it could have been Bree Council's, it could have been mine. Yeah. Um, who knows? We all remember things differently. Um, <laughs> but adding those engineers gave me access to those um, councils where I was able to meet them for the first time. And um, getting to know them in person is really important for business. And um, our relationship grew from there. The work for the 54 councils was really interesting because the local member at the time came to me and he said, I have a pile of road funding requests and letters and complaints and the pile is so high I can't jump over it. 
He said, um, can you help me understand what are the pro- road projects out there? You know, our roads aren't going anywhere. We've had the same roads for 100 years. Mm. So the problems aren't continuously shifting. If you can just map the road network and you can put all the roads on there that need upgrading and how much is it going to cost and in what year do you want it done um, and how much will that cost in that year, so escalate the cost forward, all of a sudden you can plan and you can prepare. Now, you would think that this level of organisation would already be happening. You would think someone would have a plan for the entire regional New South Wales road system, but they don't and they still don't because local government looks after some roads, state government looks after other roads and the feds look after the rest. So all of a sudden, um, the members said to me, can you bundle up all the local government owned and operated roads and tell me what our problem is. Now, we found there was a $3 billion deficit in road funding over the next um, 20 years. We were able to map every single road by colour. Green is a tourist road. Red is a really bad safety issue, you know, blind corner. Um, Yellow is a road that really needs strategic ag funding to get um, grain to grain storage silos, to get livestock to market, and blue are roads impacted by mining. So... Um, there's a lot of money travelling along that road in the form of coal or rare earth minerals. Perhaps the royalties can actually go into fixing that road up. So by mapping it and colour coding it, you can roll a map out on a table and a politician can look at it and say, oh, yeah, there's a a future development happening there with a a large feedlot or a company wants to put a a quarry there. all of a sudden they can see it, they can understand it, um, and it's backed up by data. So there's a report behind it that shows every single um, road and what needs to be done and the photos. And we pulled the whole project together with a very small team um, from a farm at Walgett. It's incredible. Uh, Yeah, and that was 54 councils came together to do that mapping project. Um, I was looking through the data the other day for a project I'm doing, and I have more data sitting in that report than Transport for New South Wales has access to right now on our local roads. Wow. Yeah. No one's done it. Was it a lot of time on the ground for you? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of driving. Yeah, a lot of driving. <laughs> the funniest was um, when the floods came through Walgut, I think it was 2011, there was so much road flood, flood damage that the RMS couldn't drive the road themselves. So I was employed by the RMS to drive every kilometre of the Walgett district. It was 2,000 kilometres of roads we drove, myself and the roads manager, and we had to mark every spot um, that had a problem and then put in a a funding application to get that money. And then we had to sit at the table and negotiate with the state government to get our fair share of money for those roads. It was a really interesting process because you really had to fight for the money. You know, um, and Walgett Council really did a good job of justifying what they needed. Um, two problems. One, we don't build back better. So you, you have a flood come through your road. If it was on your farm, you'd put some rock in the causeway. You'd build it back so it was better than before and the next flood wouldn't wash it away. The government doesn't pay for that. So you have a flood, we'll build back to the existing standard. Sure enough, we'll have another flood in 10 years. It'll get washed away again. So that's a change that I want to see in the next couple of years is build back better funding. 
and um, policy around that. And we're doing that through the Bush Summit, pushing that out through the Daily Telegraph. So, so the decision to then move to... Was Stanford and the MBA always uh, something you um, wanted to do? Or how did that come about? Yeah, it, it's interesting how life works out. Um, I always thought I would go on and do graduate study. I always thought I would do a master's. But when I moved to Walgett and started this business, part of me thought those dreams are now sitting on the top shelf of a bookshelf and they're, they're no longer mine to grab. They're out of reach. And the thought of doing an MBA online, was it just it's just not me. I'm a face-to-face person. I like to learn in groups. I like to learn by doing. So I had taken that um, thought of doing an MBA like a book and put it up on the shelf and it was out of reach. And about four years after moving to Walgut, I realised that that wasn't my future. And I was doing this road project for the 54 councils and I was taking it down to Macquarie Street and showing it to the politicians and I was like, if I continue to be the boots on the ground out here doing this legwork, I'm never going to have enough impact in Macquarie Street and I'm never going to make the real change that I want unless I move up that infrastructure pipeline. Right now I'm out here, there's a flood... I'm the one doing the 2,000 kilometres. You actually have to move up into the offices and the boardrooms where the decisions are made if you really want to impact change. So it became clear to me that my future wasn't going to be in Walgut. And it also became clear to me that um, I was starting to struggle with my confidence. And as a business owner, you go through ebbs and flows of feeling like really in control. And then there are other times where you just think you've done a terrible job, but the client's actually really happy and you just never ask the question. Yep. So for me, I, um, I, I truly lost my confidence. You know, a council rang up and said, can you help us? Um, we want to rebuild a weir. We'd love your advice. Um, and I just froze. And I think that was sort of the moment when um, I decided that um, I would leave. And when people lose their confidence, um, everyone does things differently. Um, but for me, I actually left regional Australia and I left you know, this guy I dated for, you know, 10 years and two black Labradors and um, beautiful home and uh, obviously a, a successful business. And um, I had 12 months where I had to put in place the next step. Again, I didn't have, while letting go of one opportunity, I didn't have the next opportunity in my hand. Um, I had to go out and um, work to get a scholarship and I got an Australian Sir John Monash scholarship in hindsight, it looks great. You know, I've come up with one of the top Australian scholarships, but at the time, um, I hadn't even applied for that. Yeah. So. Can, I want to jump into that further because yeah. something big comes off the back of this, but when you're, you've made fairly drastic changes at what is a, a low point and really second-guessing yourself, so what, what else did it look like? You've, you've left Walgett and home. Was it, yeah, were you trying to simplify your life to... I think I was trying to um, – I don't know what I was doing. <laughs> I was, <laughs> it was the hardest decision I've ever made in my life. It was the right decision. But at the time, what I was doing was falling back on my education. I was saying my education got me um, to a place where I could run my own business in regional Australia. My education got me to a place where I could do um, real infrastructure projects and make a real difference in rural communities. So my education and my network – and all of a sudden, 
when looking to go to the next step, the next thing that I want to do with my life, I had to look at what are the education gaps and what are the things that um, I can utilise that I already have, but what do I need? And that dream, you know, to do the MBA, that book that I put up on the shelf that was just sitting there, it actually felt like it fell off the bookshelf and hit me on the head. And it was like, <laughs> hey, you always wanted to do this. It's actually not out of reach, um, but you are going to have to make pretty serious changes to do it. And um, to apply for the Australian Sir John Monash Scholarship, um, to be awarded that, to then um, fail to get into Harvard, fail to get into MIT, fail to get into Kellogg. Um, and then my one of my mentors said, hey, you should try Stanford. It's a really unique campus. Um, everyone's doing their own thing. There's a lot of startups. You know, it's the home of Google where they first started. And um, I looked into Stanford and I was like, wow, this place really sounds like me. Um, and all of a sudden, uh, it's round three. They only have 10 spots left out of a class of 400. Um, there's a 19-day application process. Um, there's two days until that ends. Um, I get my application in. I get my interview. Um, and I get a, one of the last 10 spots at Stanford that year. And, I, you know, it's hard to imagine that you could take that risk, step off that farm at Walgett and move back in with your parents on a farm at Canamble. And everyone's asking you, what are you doing? What are you doing? Like they know that you've left, but they, you don't have anything to say, what are you doing next? Um, and to have all of that fall into line over a very long 12 months, it's just a good reminder that we have to read every single sentence of every chapter of our book. You can't fast forward a transition. Transitions aren't um, fast. They are real chapters of our lives that we have to live through. And too many people are, are too keen and quick to get from one side of the transition to the other as opposed to being part of that transition. So for me, while it was a, a super tough 12 months, um, it was like 12 months to the day that I walked onto the Stanford University campus and started three years uh, studying an MBA and a public policy master's. Wow. Um, and it was just, it was an incredible experience because everyone you spoke to was doing something different. There was no sense of tall poppy syndrome. There was no jealousy. It wasn't like you meet someone and they're starting something and you feel a, a urge of, of envy. You actually look at them and say, wow, that's really cool. I'm really excited to know you. How can I help? And when I started the exchange, that was one of the the values that we wanted to bring here. You know, locals championing locals, businesses supporting businesses. Um, and you can't be what you can't see. So imagine having you know, hundreds of small businesses popping up across regional Australia right now and other people saying, hey, I could do that. Mm. That could be me. Um, but I'll just do it in my town. So, yeah. In, in terms of the values that you mentioned for the exchange, but... When you're at that point, and, and I've seen previously where you've talked about um, the, the John Monash scholarship and, and you actually re were reflecting back, I think it was last year, on your application and those values were as true then as they were back when you applied. Yeah. Is that what got you by, you think? Yeah, it's funny how um, when you write a goals list and you find that goals list years later, it's like it was subconsciously with you all the time. I had um, drawn a picture in 2009 when I first moved to Walgett. I drew a picture of what I wanted my life to look like. And there was a, a ski boat and two dogs and, yes, Walgett. And, uh, 
it was a little business with JLK Engineering written on it. And um, all of that, when I found that piece of paper in four years, all of that had come true. Like how incredible to have drawn it, lost it, found it, and there it is, your life laid out for you. And I looked at that paper and it didn't feel the way I thought it should feel to see that you had accomplished those goals. It felt like I was actually had arrived at my destination and realised, oh, this is actually not where I want to stay. And so setting a new um, agenda, new goals for what my future might look like, I always say don't plan in pen, plan in pencil. You know, draw your goals in pencil because they change so frequently. And sometimes it's less about the goal and more about um, what is the intention of that goal. So when I say, when someone says to me, I want to start a business, it's like, why? Is it financial freedom? Is it protecting your farm from drought? Is it um, feeling that you have um, potential that has um, never been realised? Is it um, something about proving yourself that um, actually pushes that goal to start a business? So if I ask myself, why did I want to get further up that infrastructure pipeline? Why did I feel I need to leave Walgett when um, things were going so well. You know, we had such a good life out there. Well, um, the reason I had to leave was I had aspirations to impact regional communities through my infrastructure work at a level I didn't feel I could achieve by living there. I think things are very different today. I would say to people, you can do anything anywhere. Um, But we didn't have buy from the bush in 2012. We didn't have... uh, the great uh, resignation. We didn't have the decentralisation of all our government businesses. You know, department regional are going to put employees in Dubbo and Armadale and Orange, and that wasn't a thing, um, you know, six or seven years ago, as it is now. Yeah. No, and I, and I think on that, it is. It's definitely like I think someone like a Georgie Somerset, who we've spoken to, she's been doing it for twenty years, but it's, she's been fairly well out of sight with it. Like she's just kept doing her piece. But then it is people like you have actually... And I think that it comes back to maybe it is with rural Australia. Something needs to be physical. Like it needs to be seen to be believed that, yeah, that could be me or that could be my yeah. business or we can live kind of outside of the capital cities. And I think that's the beautiful thing. Over the last couple of years, it's... Yeah, it's... <laughs> the the shock has been for long enough that yeah. we've had to adapt and, and now it can hopefully or should continue that's it it's um there's a lot of trust in yourself that in that transition in that time frame where things are uncertain and your future is unknown that you have blind faith that you will get where you need to be and when i first got to stanford i had a lot of trouble studying it was really hard there's so many great things to do (laughs) (laughs) and I said to my, um, you have an academic advisor. It's something like there's one staff member to every two students over there. The, the place yeah. is off the charts. It's, it's, um, the doors open for you and the taps turn on for you and <laughs> it's fancy. Um, and uh, she said to me, you need to have blind faith that something you are learning right now is going to help you down the track. And it's very hard um, because we all want things now today. You know, we all want that satisfaction immediately. Well, when you're sitting in class learning how to use Excel to do a property development, how could you ever think that that Excel spreadsheet would be valuable 
in Dubbo four years later to buy an old clock tower and restore it. You know, how could you ever sit in that classroom and trust, have blind faith that that was necessary learning? Um, people need to put in the grunt work. There needs to be um, effort, energy and education behind everything you do. And social media is, is tearing that away. All we see on social media is someone starting a business and it's glorious, the logo, <laughs> and they're on a road trip somewhere and they're well-dressed and they've got great earrings and their hair looks amazing. It's like, well, actually, if that was me, I would have stayed up till midnight the night before prepping for that meeting or that road trip and I would have put more time into prepping than I would have ever needed to if I was an employee. Yeah. We don't share those stories on social media. So there are a lot of people... Um, seeing the glory of starting a business without knowing the the work that goes in behind the scenes, the worry, the stress you carry, the care you have for your employees, um, all of that um, is not shown on social media these days. I, I want to ask on that. I think well, I did want to talk about the exchange, but with COVID coming around last year, what what stress were you wearing with? such an uncertain future and with mm. your team were you were there sleepless nights yeah you know i can't remember the two weeks between when covid hit and we shut the doors to when um job keeper came in i don't know what happened in those two weeks yeah um it was pretty it was very tough i remember standing at the exchange with my team and i was in tears and i said um we are going through this. I said, we're not, um, we're not separating. We're not uh, standing anyone down. I said, we need to come through this as a team because I don't know if I have the ticker to start all over again. Yeah. And we all agreed that we would um, work through it um, in whatever came at us. Um, and we were able to do things very quickly because we're a small team. So we had programs... Uh, innovation programs lined up to start. I think it was they were starting in April and all of a sudden here's COVID closing our doors in March. We've only been open three months in the new building. Um, we shut the doors. Uh, we had $20,000 worth of cancellations in one day and um, we were able to flip everything online. So our community happy hours went online. Our innovation program went online. Our... Um, offerings went online and while that only has a minimum revenue tied to it what we found was our business community in the surrounding regions actually wanted to be part of a community in lockdown they couldn't physically be part of that community but they wanted to be logging on and checking in and talking so we had a 12-week business innovation program and at the end of that every single business said the thing i loved the most was checking in every wednesday morning and having a conversation. So while we had global mentors and we had great content, it was the accountability, the conversation, the relationships that made the big difference. And interestingly, you might have taken part in, in that as well. Is that the innovation I did. program? I did. It was um, it was great. I've been working on a little software package and, um, and so I stepped in. And COVID was the downtime I needed to do it, uh, which um, is rare. It was rare to have time to focus. But when you really focus on one thing, that's when the success happens. And I, I can't really um, preach that because I've got so many swim lanes going right now. But boy, when I just focus on one thing, 
the connections, the stars aligning, the people coming together, it is brilliant. The clock tower would be the best example of that because I lived in Dubbo. I was here at 6am in the morning. I think I was, it was one of the happiest times of my life when I was focusing on this building. We, when we see you heading out to Narrabri for yeah, version two. Yeah, I go out a bit, but I have a, um, I have a wonderful builder out there, um, Tom Craig, and he does a lot of it. And, um, and I have to be realistic that um, if you want to scale, you really can't be there um, uh, screwing the legs onto the bottom of the furniture yeah. <laughs> at four o'clock in the afternoon before <laughs> opening the next day. Uh, there is a certain... Um, formality and growth that you have to go through that means you can't be on the tools as much um so the things that i really enjoy doing um sometimes i actually have to say goodbye to them and trust them to someone else knowing that it's giving them a great opportunity um, but it's not something that i can always do it's not sustainable how have you gone with putting kind of separating yourself from the business because in the very beginning it was the exchange Gillian kilby now it's the exchange it's really hard to do. A lot of businesses, um, a lot of businesses I see um, have a, a business and they have a figurehead, and that continues. Um, if we want this to go to more towns, we need local champions because, as I said before, people love supporting local. Um, so, I don't want to march into a town and set up an exchange. I'd like to be invited, welcomed. Uh, I'd like to be part of it. Um, versus being all of it. And that's sort of both a a way of looking at it that is good for the community, but it's also a way of looking at it that's good for me because I can't be everywhere. And um, this concept, which has been proven in Dubbo, that works so well, um, the next step is is to see it work in other places, but it will only work with good local champions. And so on that, looking ahead, you've got board positions, Mm. you've got another start-up, another side hustle family <laughs> and what, yeah. what's next for you uh working out what to quit okay yeah a friend of mine was going to write this book and he never wrote it um he uh it was going to be called the fog of more and it was about quitting you know the power of quitting so how do you work out what to say goodbye to uh we are very loss averse people don't want to lose so the thought of quitting something is is foreign and new and different. Um, so I'm trying to work out what to say no to, and I I I think I need a couple of weeks holiday over Christmas to work <laughs> it out. I can't say I have the solution, but um, I do think too often we say yes to everything when what we say no to can actually be some of the most powerful influences in our career trajectory. And um, if I can work out the combination of roles that I keep where I can have the most impact and with the roles that I resign from, um, finding the right regional rep to take my spot. So um, there's an advisory board I sit on for a university right now. It would be fabulous to hand my spot over to someone regionally based, um, representative of a diverse community or population and someone who's as passionate as I was when I started that role four years ago, um, wouldn't it be great to have, you know, if I can find um, 10 people to turn up and interview for that, who knows of the nine who aren't successful where they'll end up on an advisory role because that university now has access to them. So that's probably my goal. Work out how to gift what for me is saying no to and very hard 
um, to another person as an opportunity. Oh, wow. Yeah. I've got one other question, yeah. which we ask everyone who comes on the podcast, and so you get the chance to head back to Loretto Normanhurst <laughs> and talk to Year 10 students and give them some advice around why they should potentially look at a career in agriculture or regional Australia. Mm. Um, when, uh, when you're at school and uh, everything's laid out for you, you know, your timetable, what you'll study... Pretty much your food choices are limited by what's at the canteen or what your parents pack you for lunch. Um, your life is very structured and everyone's telling you what to do. Well, a career in the big city is no different. When you step into a role at the big four consulting firms or finance companies, um, same goes. You're told what to do, how to manage your calendar, how to send emails, how to do your email sign-off, you're disciplined when you don't do those things. Um, there's a, a huge herd mentality. And when you come out to regional Australia, the one thing employers are looking for is autonomy, independence, innovation, creativity, self-starters. And it's not because they're qualities we want. It's because they're qualities we need. My first intern came from Sydney Uni, never been over the Blue Mountains, turns up at Walgett for her first internship as an engineer. She's like... I had her write the policy for snake bite because I didn't have a policy for snake bite. <laughs> <laughs> that was day one. Um, you know, by day 10, we're on the side of the road zip tying and duct taping my bumper back together because we'd hit a kangaroo. <laughs> you know, so and, – um, and she wrote a post on LinkedIn the other day because we're looking for more interns and she said, you know, this was my first internship and if you want to learn how to – um, be independent, be autonomous, you know, go and work with Gillian Kilby. And um, we need these skill set because we live out here, we have to be self-sufficient. We uh, do everything in our businesses. Um, and I think that if someone wants a real career, one where they do have autonomy, they flex their muscles, they're listened to, um, regional Australia is the place to do it. You know, the, the cities are for... Um, following a, a corporate career path, and that's great, but the regions are actually where you get to be um, an individual, where you get to have uh, more autonomy and where you have, get to have a great life. So if I was sitting in year 10, um, I would be looking for, one, what is the skill set and the education I need to be highly employable? And two, um, where do I see myself living and why? And that might come down to... You know, you might need mountain bike tracks. You know, might need the ocean. You might need inland lakes. Whatever it is that makes your life um, comfortable and wonderful, um, paired with a great career and um, you know, and an employer or a business that um, meets those needs. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that one as much as I did. I think some of the key takeaways was, as Jill described, education has such an important role. And that lifelong learning and continually looking to better yourself is only going to help those around you and, and the impact that you're wanting to have. I think how she was so honest about the process of heading to the bush, falling in love and then actually making the decision to step away was incredibly insightful. And I'm also very excited to say that if you follow the exchange on Instagram, you can start to see Jill's next project, the exchange at Narrabri and how she's helping and really building communities across um, rural Australia. I can't wait to join you again next Wednesday. Thank you for spending 
this time with me this week. Look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane, and we'll see you next week.